0: Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined by author David Dumbtruck to talk about his latest novel, Red X. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you
1: very much for having me. It's a treat to be here.
0: I am so excited to have you on. I feel like this has been like a long time coming.
1: <laughs> you know, I know you loved my first book, The Bone Mother, and, yes. uh, and I was obviously you know thrilled with that but uh but yes uh it's great being on here to talk about something new.
0: Yeah so yeah Red X will be coming out at the end of August.
1: As we sit here it's six weeks away which is kind of a weird time for most authors I think because the work is done Mm -hmm. and you're kind of getting ready for a whole sort of promotional push and things like that but there's really not a lot to do except sit and wait and kind of dread what's going to happen next so uh so yeah it's uh yeah i'm not i'm not nervous at all no no not anxious at
0: all (laughs) i can't imagine how that must be as an author like i feel like i would have to stop myself from checking goodreads to you know, read the every review that comes in.
1: <laughs> I am sad to say that I have checked Goodreads. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Everyone tells you not to, and they are correct. You should not check Goodreads. I have checked Goodreads. And in fact, it was good that I checked Goodreads when I did, because one of the um, people who was to review the book uh, didn't finish it. And she indicated it was hard because I was reading and I was trying to figure out why that was. And it was clear that there was, in fact, a technical problem with the version she downloaded. And that was actually um, really useful information for me that I was able to go back to the publisher with. Um, so I would say if you're going to check Goodreads, like maybe like hold it from a distance, like at arm's length <laughs> and sort of squint and just sort of see what's going on and then close it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> just be like, how is it? Okay, good enough, good enough. <laughs> So can you tell our listeners a little bit about the book?
1: I can try. (laughs) As you already know, having read it, it's an unusual book. I I apparently am carving this little niche out for myself um, in writing um, unusually structured horror, unusually formatted horror um, books that I want people to have, I guess, when they read my work. I want them to have... A truly unique experience where um, I mean, I really I enjoy other kinds of books as well. Obviously, Um, I read a lot of horror fiction that is completely conventional, but I'm really interested in 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 giving uh, people um, something they can't get in any other medium. And uh, and that meant for me. First with the Bone Mother and now with this, it meant really investigating what the form of a book really is. What is a book as an object? How can you how can you scare people, um, unsettle them, unnerve them with a book? I mean, books are ubiquitous. Certainly around my place, my to be read pile is my apartment. So um, so how can you set a book apart? from everything else that they're going to see in the store, everything else that they're going to see on a site, everything else that's going to be sitting in their home. And I wanted to give that feeling (laughs) that maybe they should just, like, tuck it at the bottom of the pile so they wouldn't have to look at it or something. Just that sort of (laughs) feeling. And then I wanted to extend that to the inside. So the book is uh, both a horror novel and a memoir. And how that works is there are five chapters more or less that are set eight years apart starting in 1984 and going through to 2016 and in each of those chapters uh, with, they're all set in toronto in toronto's uh gay village uh the heart of the queer communities of toronto in each of those chapters so in each of those years a gay man disappears uh sometimes more than one gay man um depending on the year and they leave behind, um, a small circle of friends or family. Uh, these are, um, even by, uh, queer standards, these men are largely marginalized. Um, they, they may be, um, people of color. They may be, um, people who have addiction issues. Uh, they may be people who are homeless. Uh, they're, Something has sort of pushed them to the outside edges and has therefore made them vulnerable apparently possibly to a predator Um, But that's not clear to the family or friends who are left behind. They're baffled. They're they're bereft They're trying to figure out what they can possibly do and they're not getting a lot of cooperation from the police or any other authorities And so these people just basically, you know, vanish into the missing persons files Um, we know fairly early on and they come to realize over the course of the many years that the book takes place that in fact um, something is taking them and uh, the nature of what that something is is not entirely clear and becomes clearer at a particular point and, and that's basically the thrust of the book, them coming to realize that, first of all, there is a community of people who have lost people and that they all need to kind of find each other. And that secondly, that they need to find a way, if it's possible, to, to stop these disappearances or to identify what it is that is making those disappearances happen. So that's the large part of the book then there's the other part of the book and that is the memoir part um and it consists really of five essays that are interspersed between the fiction sections they're written by me they're about me and a lot of them have to do with my relationship with horror as a queer person um I talk about the phenomenon of gay men disappearing because of course it's a very real thing. Um, Many large cities um, across North America, around the world have had um, gay men disappear over decades uh, for one reason or another. Um, Frequently it's foul play, but it's also it's suicide. um, You know, it's, it's drug use. It's, it's fleeing family it's fleeing debts it's 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 sometimes uh murder and and that as a phenomenon um fascinates me for a bunch of reasons um when i first started the book there had been some disappearances in toronto and then as i reveal over the course of the book a friend of mine disappeared um as one of that succession of disappearances and then was later found dead and uh and we discovered that we had a serial killer in our midst this happened actually part way through my writing the book quite separate from all of that, oh. uh, you know, it was a fictional story until it was not. Yeah. And actually, at that point, I turned to a close friend of mine, uh, my late friend, Wong Ward, who uh, was a journalist. And I said to her, because she had been encouraging me to write this all the way through. And I said, I can't write it anymore. I have to stop. And she said, no, no, no. You, all the more reason for you to continue. And I said, well, the only way I can continue, <laughs> because now it's real is if i place myself into the narrative and that was how the essays came to me came to be and and there were other things that i deal with in the essays i have a particular disability called hypokalemic periodic paralysis try saying that three times um which is a genetic disorder um that involves um an electrolyte imbalance it's basically my sodium potassium pump is broken and when that's triggered Um, the connection between my nerves and my muscles goes, and I become paralyzed. That's affected uh, the way that I experience my body. Um, It's increased uh, certain kinds of anxieties for me. Um, So I talk a bit about that. I talk a bit about my relationship with horror as a queer person um, and as a person who has been um, depicted and objectified and stereotyped in horror but who also wants to kind of reclaim horror as a queer mm-hmm. person and situate myself within that. And I also talk about a historical figure that um is woven into the narrative. His name is Alexander Wood, and and he I, is he has been styled over the years as a kind of a queer pioneer. But uh, in Toronto, uh, back when it was the town of York, like over 200 years ago, and unfortunately, <laughs> his claim to fame as a queer person is that he was accused of sexual assault. He uh, he may or may not have concocted a situation where um a woman was sexually assaulted and he as a magistrate examined the genitals of a variety of suspects because this woman had apparently scratched them or something and but of course in this homophobic village at the time there was and this and they clearly sensed that he was queer um they they used this as an opportunity perhaps to frame him and um, and threaten him with the possibility of imprisonment. Instead, he fled. He went back to Scotland, where he came from, and he waited out a few years until the war of 1812 began. And then he came back and he fought as a soldier, and uh, kind of redeemed himself. and And so his story is woven in not only as as uh, the subject of. Uh, one of the essays but also as a as a sort of fictionalized character um throughout the book as you can tell it's very complicated (laughs) i promise that it does actually all come together sort of in the final act and um and that we have what i would say are some conventionally satisfying horror narrative moments but there are other things going on as well and um And that was for me, probably the biggest challenge was to take these, um, these multiple strands and to, and to sort of bring them together and, 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 and find a way to sort of tie them off if we have to use this metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much, that's pretty much what the book is like. There are other things going on in the book as well, but I don't want to spoil any of those, um, that's i think that's a fair description
0: i think yeah that's definitely more than fair <laughs> <Good>. yeah <laughs> yeah i would say you yeah it's a. Uh, you've got a lot of things cooking but it all ends up like working out you gotta trust the process right
1: well yeah i mean one of the things that was funny about it this book I mean, much like my first book, my first book started as a play and then was adapted and expanded into a novel, Um, a novel of many voices and many fragments. Mm -hmm. I know some people that drives them out of their minds, but that was where I sort of started um, as as a novelist. And then with this one, this also started as a play, a play that, yeah, a play that never got produced Um, and um, and. And it was actually, it was kind of cool in that it was set in a local theater and the idea was that you would be sitting in the theater and experiencing the haunting such as it is all around you the way that the characters do and and the theater is um a well-known Canadian queer theater which also added that extra layer to it and it was an interesting idea I never really quite got it to gel and so I actually Mm -hmm. sort of set it aside um and continued on trying other projects and then came the bone mother and then I thought oh I you know what this worked I really should Think about looking back at Red X because that's what it was called, and uh, and see if there's a way that I could adapt it. And in fact, that was I I trashed a lot of it. The ideas all remained, but <laughs> but the 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 playing with form in the theater obviously doesn't work the same way when you're playing with the form of a novel. So so I just I set a lot of Sadly, a lot of the typing aside <laughs> and kept a lot of the concepts and uh, and then continued to to sort of flesh it out from there.
0: All right. I had no idea that it was a play before or that it was that was the original <laughs> Never throw
1: anything out. If you are a writer, never throw any, put it away somewhere. I mean, the the, the unfortunate part is, number one, your home becomes completely filled with paper. And number two, you never (laughs) really know where anything is. But never throw anything out. (laughs) Because sooner or later, you know, I have gone digging through stuff. For like a paragraph that I know that I wrote like eleven years ago or some such thing, and yeah. and it has turned into a whole other thing. It's just it's weird mm-hmm. how the stuff that that comes out of you and that even has like a little life within itself, it's still something that you can go back revisit and turn into something huge, something that really flourishes. And so, uh, yeah, like. Uh, if there's a way that you can organize your life, that you can keep all your shit, then by all means do it. <laughs> because you never know. You never know when it's going to be useful. I sound like a hoarder. <laughs> and maybe I am in this one respect. But, uh, but yeah, hang on to everything.
0: As long as there's not a suspicious looking old red notebook that shows up
1: oh yeah well yes do watch what it is that shows up in your home <laughs> yes i forgot to mention that there's an old red notebook that appears in uh repeatedly in red x and uh and that seems to have kind of a life of its own so that's another thing to look forward to
0: loved bone mother which yeah you said was uh a bit more like i guess i've described it as like a short story novel i love short story short story novels uh but that was basically all about folklore and there is a little bit of that element also in red x
1: yes i'm very um attracted to folklore and and it was such a success for me with the bone mother because i had picked um, eastern european folklore which uh some of which is relatively obscure There are a few things that, I mean, obviously things like, you know, Strigoi, which have inspired vampires and werewolves and things like that, have risen to prominence, even if people don't really know uh, what the origins of those legends are. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that people just knew nothing about. And I thought, oh this is stuff I know from my, my childhood. So I can, I, for me, it was kind of like low hanging fruit and the stuff that I didn't know, I knew I would be able to find out fairly easily. And, uh, and so I, at the time, again, because I was writing it as a play, I wrote it as a series of monologues and um, the large part of the book is a series of monologues. And, and I, um, when we, when we produced it, uh, we had five actors who were of like a wide range of ages and genders and presentations and and backgrounds, and that was great because we were able to project the images of the various characters onto a screen and then whoever was up at the microphone could just speak. And obviously they were that character. They wouldn't have to try to do very much um, to, to change their appearance or anything because the, the character is right up there. Of course, when the book was done, I took those images and inserted them uh, into the novel and, uh, and that turned out to be tremendously effective. And, uh, and I would, and, and one of the things that I think is, um, kind of put the book over the top as um, as unusual reading experiences went.
0: Yeah, I loved that about the book, the the pictures. I mean, you. All, I feel like in both of your books, yeah, you always add like a little extra thing for the reader to make it an, a, more than an average reading experience or a conventional reading experience. Well, I,
1: I really like books. I mean, it's hard to tell from the kinds of books I'm writing, but in my heart, I really like books that are fun. And I think that, you know, like there are all kinds of interesting technologies that people have applied to. Um, making books more interesting, making them richer and more immersive. You know, as a child, I loved pop-up books, you know, and, you know, or books where there were, like, little windows and stuff that were cut through so that you could see what was coming in the next page. When I was a teenager, I mean, one of the best things about being a teenager in, like, the 70s and the 80s were those uh, wonderfully trashy horror novels that had, like, windows cut out or embossing or (laughs) you would turn the page and there would be this, like, full-color spread of Something horrible, like there be all, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I love this stuff," and and it was really great uh, to be able to play with some of that stuff in both these books, and and to sort of see what the future of that is, and not limit it to being gimmicks necessarily. I mean, I suspect that there are people who think that my books are gimmicky books because I do employ some of this stuff. But I try to do more with it than that. I try to create something that's just a richer experience and and that for a moment makes people just sort of, you know, jump back a bit and go, "What is this thing that I am seeing in this, you know, because you're we're used to a very conventional looking reading experience. and mm. and But there's no reason, particularly now in the digital age, for us to settle for that. We can do a lot of stuff. We can be very creative. And I like that level of creativity when I encounter it in other people's books, like House of Leaves, for example, yeah. as I guess one of the most, some people hate it. And I, I <laughs> totally understand why. I totally understand why. <laughs> and when I first got it, I thought to myself, how do you even read this? You know, and so do at a certain point you think to yourself, I'm going to stop trying to read it in a conventional way, I'm just going to try to experience it. And that's really when the book I think comes to life. And there are a number of books that I've enjoyed over the years that have had that sort of special quality to them. And and I you know, I'm a I'm a sucker for it. I'm I'm <laughs> they saw me coming, I'll spend forty dollars on it, I don't care. <laughs>
0: It's one of those things like people always ask me as someone who reads a lot of horror books, like, like, how are you scared by something on the page? It's not as effective as something on film per se. I'm like, that's not true. You can totally get scared from from something on a page.
1: Even in a, a fairly... Um, conventional book I've certainly had experiences both with horror and with thrillers where I have been reading along and then something happens on the page and it's just like it's the very next line or it's the very next paragraph where I have gasped where I have <laughs> where I have slammed the book shut once I threw a book across the room <laughs> I, like I don't know I maybe I'm odd but I've like a really intimate experience with a book when I'm reading it and when I'm fully involved, when I am, when, when I am completely in it, um, the words are just going directly into my brain. They do not stop at the eyes. And, uh, and it really, and those moments are, are really thrilling for me. And, and, and that's, I think the kind of thing that I hope for, for my readers, that they get to have, you know, even a few of those experiences where, you know, you sit there and you go, hey, wait, what's going on here? And and something really jumps out, startles you and affects you in a deep way. And uh, and I think that's an advantage that books have over. um Many films, many television shows, is that it is in fact this almost seamless connection between the author and the mind of the reader. Um, people who love reading and who love books know this feeling well. Where Time ceases to exist, you are just turning pages, you are absorbing information into yourself, you can see everything, you can hear everything, and and in those moments, you know, you are really vulnerable in a way that you're not at times with most movies, most television shows, most other kinds of media. I will say that sometimes, I mean, it's an extension of books, obviously. Sometimes audiobooks have that same thing. You know, some, some audiobooks I've, I've listened to, you're very aware of the reader, you're very aware it's almost like an artificial kind of experience. But then there are other readers where the moment they start speaking, you are in that world. <laughs> you are absolutely in there. And and it, and it if you're like, if you only have an hour, it is all you can do not to keep listening for another hour because you have to know. You have to hear it. You have to know. And that, I think, is just fantastic. Uh, whenever people say to me things like, oh, you know, audiobooks, it's not really like reading it. Oh, God, a great audiobook is just an incredibly intense and personal experience. There's really nothing like it
0: absolutely not and I mean the same thing I also love in audiobooks when they add just like that little bit extra on the production value
1: yep absolutely I can tell you without spoiling anything that there is going to be a little bit extra added to ours (laughs) there is a particular point in the book where a little something something is required and I know that the people who are working on the audiobook are eager to get to that part because it's going to be a lot of fun for them so and hopefully for the listener too
0: that's awesome well speaking of books that have unnerved you what's a book that you've put in the freezer
1: oh god <laughs> um there there are a few books that i have found uh could be remarkably difficult <laughs> um and yet you want to keep reading you know yeah. i mean probably one of the toughest books That I ever read was the girl next door. I'm sure I'm sure a dozen people have already said this to you by Jack Ketchum. Um, And um, it's all the more unpleasant for being based more or less on a true story. And um, and it's about um, a teenage girl who is held physically captive and sexually captive and is tortured um, by her family and the neighbors. And it is grim 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 i i i have a beautiful collector's hardcover version of it because i had never i was never able to get a hold of it any other way and i started reading it and i thought i have spent fifty dollars on a book i cannot finish how is how is this possible (laughs) but i pushed through and it's i mean it's 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 not enjoyable it is brilliantly written um and you see the darkest side of human nature all the way through this book. Um, and I finished it, and I was—I—I I felt that I had gone through an experience. I will probably never read it again. <laughs> it is sitting there gathering dust, as it should. Um, but yes, that was one. But then there are other ones that there was. There was um, Andrew Michael Hurley wrote a book. I think it was his first book called *The Loney*. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a British author. I think he's a British author. He's from the UK, I want to say, and it is about, um, a family, um, an afflicted family, I will say that, um, that's quite religious and they take a pilgrimage, um, to sort of the Northern coast of England the sort of north I guess the northwestern coast and um, the religious uh, stops that they make stations that they that they stop at um, at a particular point overlap with pagan ones which is not unusual in the British Isles and uh, and they begin having uh, particular experiences as part of the pilgrimage this was a book where for a long long time nothing happens (laughs) now normally (laughs) normally this would be a sign for me to like give up but the the atmosphere of dread that is imposed upon you as you read he's a beautiful writer and he describes everything about the landscape Everything about the, the subtle interactions between the characters. He describes it so perfectly. And you know what kind I mean, this is one of the things I really like about horror. You know what kind of book it is when you pick it up. You know what kind of book it is when you settle in for the experience. So when, a, when, a, when you're reading a horror novel and nothing happens for a long time, it's because something is going to happen. <laughs> and at a certain point, you get to it and the little things that have been sort of going on the back start to become a little bigger and you go oh okay and the it it just it just starts to close in on you as you're reading it like you're being wrapped in an ice cold sheet and <laughs> it is it was one of the most menacing unsettling things i think that i've ever read so there you go there's a recommendation go for that <laughs>
0: yeah. i will have to check that out i We'll have to admit that I didn't finish that one because I was listening to it at work and I'm like, nothing oh. is happening right oh, now. Oh, you know, I, <laughs> I know. Need some... you, you have to push a little further. Okay.
1: Push a little further. And the further you go, the darker and more clammy it gets. And you think to yourself, why are these people doing this? What's really going on here? And then when you find out, it's like, it's really, Ew. So that's just me, <laughs> but it is a long book. It is not a short book. So of slow burns, it is among the slowest. So, but I, but really it got under my skin. It really did.
0: I will have to keep that in mind and give it another try. I, I feel like even on my Goodreads shelf, I didn't put it in the, like, did not finish. I put it in the, like, set aside for now. Yeah. Camp Cause I was enjoying it. I thought it was written very well. So. I will have to do that
1: <laughs> i have i don't have his second book but i have his third one um i think the second one's called devil's Do and the third one is called starve acre and i, I starve acre is like sitting on my coffee table it has been for like a year which is not unusual in my home but it's that thing where it's because it's on the coffee table it, it's meant to like throb at me you know it's like
0: read, read
1: me, me read me, read me. <laughs> and i like okay but i but i'm like i'm working up to it <laughs> <laughs> I feel the need to work up to it.
0: you got to be in the right headspace, the right frame of mind.
1: These books, absolutely. It's like, you know, I pick, I pick something up, I, I try a few pages, and I go, you know what, no, not, I'm, I'm interested. But today is not that day. One of the books that I really, it's funny that we're, you know, and it's going to be an influence in a really odd way, in my newest book, which I'm working on now. I really loved Scott Smith's The Ruins. Mm.
0: Oh, okay. And uh,
1: have you read that?
0: Yes, I love that.
1: <laughs> I love that book. And and it, it was a book where for a long time while I was reading it, I could not figure out what was going on. Then, of course, there is kind of the gradual reveal. And at a particular moment, I thought to myself, oh, well, this is just ridiculous. And I was, but that didn't mean anything because I was hooked. I was completely hooked. And I just kept reading and reading. And the more I read, I thought, actually, this is not ridiculous. When you figure out what the premise of the book is, what's really going on within it, this is a thing that we have seen in nature in a variety of circumstances. And now we're seeing it again. It's just, you know, in this particular fashion. And I was, and and I became really engrossed with it. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that. I'll never do <laughs> in this book. So I felt quite safe, relatively speaking. <laughs> I'm not going to be going on any sort of, you know, tourism things into the jungle. I'm not going to be going to any sort of weird temples or, or you know, places where rituals happen. It's just not going to occur. But I really felt for the characters, and I really felt for what was going on with them. And it was completely clear to me, they were doomed, doomed, doomed. <laughs>
0: Yes. And I feel like one of people's biggest complaints with the book is that the characters are annoying or that they disagree with their choices. I'm like, it's a high stress situation. <laughs>
1: like I'm going to be on my best behavior through this experience no way
0: <laughs> no I always say I'm like I am the person that is screaming at everyone saying I told you all this was a bad idea and you made me come <laughs> and I will never let you forget that I mean I do
1: that on normal vacations so uh, never mind when I, I said friend. this I like, was a bad idea <laughs> I have had that conversation multiple times. (laughs) So, so yeah, I mean, to me, this is like, it's practically a documentary. But, uh, but yeah, that was another book where I just, I just, I had a whale of a time. That was just, that was just great.
0: I'm excited to see what your next book's going to be, if that's an influence.
1: Well, yeah, I can tell you it's going to seem really incongruous when I say (laughs) that. (laughs) <laughs> I can tell you that it's going to be a haunted house book because I've always wanted to write one and I feel they're kind of like you know the Mount Everest for horror writers it's like you've got to try you know so yeah. I'm going to write a horror uh, a haunted house novel and I'm I'm writing it I think so far from the point of view of the house okay so there have been a few of these, and I have liked the ones that I've seen. I have a particular approach that I'm going to try. Um, but, yeah, um, so far, because we all know how things work, so far it's called The House Across the Lake. Um, and, uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm sawing away at it. We'll see how it goes. And, uh, and we'll see when, because we'll it's going to take a little while obviously but it's a great distraction from all the waiting that i am doing for red x so
0: yeah so instead of checking goodreads you just work on the new project
1: oh i can do two (laughs) things at once
0: (laughs) (laughs) and well for people that don't follow you on twitter you've actually been posting a lot of the locations that are mentioned in red x
1: it is very true i i had I had made sure when I wrote the book that I that I wanted to make it as accurate as possible mm-hmm. um as far as the geography of the city was concerned largely for myself because I like that level of detail I like a book that that is almost tangible in that respect. Um, And then I thought to myself, well, one of the things that I should do, because some of these places I hadn't seen in years, uh, one of the things I should do is I should go to each of the spots and I should document what they look like now, because Mm -hmm. some of them were looking, we're talking about like 30 years in the past and um, in some cases more. And, uh, and a lot changes in Toronto. And one of the things that is a topic, uh, it's a very angry book on a certain level. One of the things that's a topic in the book is the fact that Toronto is a city that that in many ways lacks character because it changes all the time it tears stuff down replaces it with other stuff the stuff it tears down was interesting and meaningful and 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 redolent with history and the stuff that replaces it is largely bland and soulless and and we go through these cycles in toronto it's not very different from a lot of large cities that don't value their history um and and so it was really interesting Going back, particularly to queer spaces, um, many of which have been lost um, to to one kind of popular retail or another. You know, this one's a pizza place. This one's a bank. This one's, you know, and what's common now in Toronto, of course, is everything is a cannabis place. Um, but there are some places where it's like, here's an empty lot. <laughs> there used to be a thing here. Now it is just a bed of gravel, and and that's. Um, sadly, a big part of queer history, I think, in many large cities, but particularly in Toronto, and, and was something that I also wanted to kind of bear witness to. But for the old stuff that does remain, I think it's really interesting for people to be able to see photos and to compare them to the images they had in their mind when they were reading, um, and also for people who are nowhere near Toronto to get a sense of what these things look like um so they realized that i didn't make absolutely everything up out of you know thin air so uh so yeah it's uh it's a cool project there are still a couple of places i have to get to mostly because they're quite far flung but i'm determined (laughs) yeah it's it's like pokemon go it's pokemon go except with queer history
0: (laughs) you gotta catch them all
1: absolutely Yeah,
0: I feel like, yeah, the experience of reading the book, too, is like, wait, what's real and what's fiction? So you can check out the real stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, a lot of the stuff is accurate. Um, there's between real and when you're writing a horror novel, particularly one that has like supernatural elements, real, not real. It's You don't necessarily want to go there. But when it comes to where things are set, you know, what things look like, what things feel like. Um, You know, I... One of the things I most enjoyed writing were the the intros to each of the chapters where I talk about what movies were popular, what songs were popular, things like – because first of all, I have a terrible memory. I am old already, and and so I needed to remind myself. But I also wanted to give other people the kind of cues they needed in order to be able to sort of set themselves back. I've been really enjoying the uh, Fear Street movies. Not because they are literally historically accurate, because it turns out they're not. There are little sort of things that are a year or two off. You know, some of them are songs, some of them are props, some of them are fonts, oddly enough. But because they have that atmosphere of those Mm -hmm. periods, and it's fun, you know looking back and going, "Oh yeah, it was kind of like this." <laughs> and the soundtrack is playing and you're you know, you're looking at teenagers walking through school halls and you know, looking at lockers and th- Yeah, yeah, this is yeah. And the last night I watched the one in the summer camp and I thought, "Yeah, this is a pretty believable summer camp." <laughs> so, so those kinds of things are really cool to me. I like sort of being, you know, thrust back you know, into the past and and looking at stuff and going, you know, okay, yes or no, this or that, is this right? Is this wrong? I mean, you know, people wearing horrible wigs and things like that are always hilarious, but uh, but yeah, it's it's I find that stuff cool. I find all of that kind of stuff um, enjoyable. So I hope other people do.
0: Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. How you uh, decided on which pop culture markers to set the stage with for each era
1: it's hard um i tried really hard to go with um pieces of music that if they weren't queer milestones that they would be at least sort of evocative for bars and clubs and queer spaces in those in those periods in those times and I mean, of course, I'm always interested in what horror movie is going on in whatever year. (laughs) So several horror movies, you know, make an appearance. And uh, and so I was able to mention them. Then there are always like, you know, there are other things, particularly the further back you go. Like, you know, in Toronto in 1984, there was a garbage strike. You know, the pope was coming for a visit. You know, there are those kinds of things. We often remember years by, you know, when big big things happen you know a lot of gay men remember when um when princess diana died for example or or they'll remember when a particular album came out and things like that because i was working with the constraint of every eight years i couldn't always pick the big year you know it would be like one or two years out either way and so then it was like looking for smaller um But still connected things, things that people would sort of sit there and go, oh, yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I was tempted every once in a while to cheat, but then I realized that I would just get a whole bunch of emails and Twitter messages from people going that's
0: not right
1: and I was like no I don't want that I can't bear it
0: <laughs> yeah, well we've seen that with the fear straight thing
1: oh yeah someone today it was about juice boxes you know juice co- boxes yeah didn't get invented until 1980 and I was like oh wow I had no idea <laughs> I thought it was kind of cute actually <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, in the tweet, like, she's like, my mom just said, like, they weren't invented that. And I'm like, who just knows that? Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Who pulls that out of a hat? I would never have known. This
0: is all good. No, I started the first Fierce Street. I'm like, halfway through it. My kids aren't in school right now cuz it's summer so I don't have like my set like I can watch a horror movie time.
1: Yeah, well it's not a horror movie you want to watch with the kids, I got to tell you. And particularly the further on you go, it gets nastier and nastier. So, yeah, keep them in bed. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> my son does not do anything with horror anyway. Like he's like, "Are you are you watching a horror movie?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, as a kid though, I, and I mean, and this is touched on in the book, too, I loved horror. I mean, there were things that just, like, absolutely terrified me um and i saw a lot of stuff that was supposedly safe for the family on television but in the (laughs) 70s that was ridiculous like they put ludicrous things on tv you know the fear was all around sex but they they were able to get away with a tremendous amount otherwise on tv and there are some there are still things that give me nightmares from when i was a kid and um and so but I but for whatever reason I love being scared I just I just thought the world of it and whenever we had this I, I can tell you this is before your time <laughs> We had back then ABC movies of the week and um, there were several they went under several titles but most often they were like the Tuesday night movie or the Thursday night movie or the movie of the week. And often what they were were movies that, uh, were inspired by things that were um, at the movie theater that you couldn't possibly do on television. So, you know, there'd be a version of the of of the movie Carrie, but you couldn't possibly put Carrie on TV. So it would be, you know, be called The Spell, and it would be, you know, an entirely different kind of thing. But they had their own you know they had great actors they had their own sort of interesting writing and interesting values and um, and so there were a ton of these that were really cool Steven Spielberg made one uh, called Duel, which had Dennis Weaver as a truck. Uh, a, no, he was driving a car and a truck was menacing him. And you couldn't see who was in the driver's seat of the truck. So it had this eerie supernatural experience. That was a fantastic movie. It's hard to believe it was made for television. And um, and then a few others like that. But there, are, there are things that, you know, that I just, you know, I loved those and I loved late night chiller thrillers, which really were ridiculous because they were local television channels that just played whatever they wanted to. And some of those were ridiculously gross and violent. A lot of a lot of the Italian giallo movies ended up um, playing on television as a result of those um, and really and other like sort of graphic gory things you know i think i saw the severed arm and like grindhouse shit like this it was like why is this on tell but we were at like it was eleven thirty at night we were watching it my mother didn't care you know she was upset that we were staying up but it was like a friday night or a saturday night you know so yeah we watched ludicrous things and um and yeah i just you know i understand kids who don't want to watch horror or don't want to read horror and i think that's fantastic um i was i was hopeless from the start
0: Do you remember what your first horror movie was?
1: Well, I know what my first horror movie was. I, you know, and that was, um, I was a year and a half old. So my, yeah. So my parents, no, actually, was I a year and a half or was I three? No, I was, I was, I think it was, I think it was, I think it was three. I think it was 65. I think uh, my mother either had just had my little brother or is just about to. And so they, they went to the drive-in. And, of course, and they didn't get a sitter. So I was in the back seat. And it was a double bill of Judy Holiday in the Solid Gold Cadillac and Psycho. My mother had not, I guess neither of my parents had seen Psycho in the theater. So it, had, it did a second go-round at the drive-in. And so I was in the back seat. And what was funny about this <laughs> is that a few years later, um, I, my, one of my aunts was over visiting and I was sitting on the kitchen floor and I was drawing and I drew this eye and I drew this spiral coming out of the eye. And my aunt said, well, what's that? And I said, it's psycho. <laughs> and my aunt was like, when did you see that? And my and I said the drive-in, and my mother looked just horrified. I was something like four, and <laughs> and my aunt scowled at her. <laughs> to this day, like I have no the I mem I remember the drawing. I have no memory of seeing the movie in the drive-in. Obviously, I was so incredibly young, but um, but yeah, that apparently was the the first big one. As um as a kid i mean what was funny being a kid was there were a lot of disney movies that were like right on the line they were right on the line not just the animated ones that had like horrifying you know cartoon villains but there was there was a movie called darby o'gill and the little people it's not very good um it has sean connery in it which i guess is a selling point but um basically it comes from Irish folklore (laughs) all these things come together Mm -hmm. Uh, a series of folkloric stories that were collected um, around this fictional character named Darby O'Gill and uh, there was a hearse that would ride down from the sky like an old coach type hearse with these screaming horses Called a banshee. This was their interpretation of the banshee, and um, and at the end of the movie when Darby O'Gill dies, might as well be clear what goes on. The hearse comes down and takes him and carries him away, and it's like that as a child. That was a <laughs> mind-boggling experience. It was completely terrifying, as was, for example. Um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder, terrifying, completely terrifying, absolutely a horror movie. Just happens to be for children. Like there were those kinds of things. <laughs> so you know, but uh, but the first the first adult horror movie that I saw was at the drive-in was William Castle's Bug, which was about these incendiary bugs they look like big cockroaches that climbed out of um a crack in the ground and um and and set people on fire um the first the first but that was like a pg rated horror movie the first r rated horror movie that my my poor clueless dad took me to that uh he had no idea i wanted to see it i saw the ads on tv i thought i could handle it i was 12 was black christmas Okay. So, <laughs> my poor dad, my poor Ukrainian dad, and me, opening night of this movie, this theater is filled, filled with teenagers and young adults in Winnipeg, in the suburbs, and because uh, it was the only place where the movie was playing, and that, that movie scared the liver out of me, it's still one of my top favorite movies, just, was just, there's one point in the movie, that involves hair where the entire audience screams at the top of their lungs. (laughs) Now I don't think people would react quite so much, but then it was a big deal. And it was like, Holy cow. That, that was, that was probably the moment that sealed it for me where I thought I would love to do this to somebody someday. (laughs) So yeah. And I'm trying.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, I watched Black Christmas for the first time as, like, an adult woman and was terrified. <laughs> terrifying.
1: Oh, let me tell you. Well, the thing that drove... I mean, here's a spoiler. Um, so, everyone, if you haven't seen Black Christmas, you know... I First of all, by now, if you haven't seen Black Christmas, I don't know what's wrong with you. Like, turn this off and go and watch it and then come back. Um, but I had because it was the 70s and i had seen mostly television all my life and disney movies so it was it was beyond my understanding that you could have a movie that didn't end with the killer being revealed yeah like this was just because i was i was very familiar with mysteries and so i thought to myself this is a mystery we're obvious i'm supposed to figure out who in this entire movie might actually be the killer because it was obvious it wasn't care delay they didn't have the same color eyes and that was one of the most interesting things for me as a kid to perceive was like This person gets left out because of this tiny detail. And then it was like, okay, well, then it's obviously. So So I'm thinking about everybody in the cast and where are they when the killings happen and when the calls are coming in and all of this other stuff. And I thought I had nailed it. And then you don't know. You never, And what's worse, she's still with him. She's still in the house. She's obviously going to die. And I just sat there. It was like, like existential despair when you're 12 years old. <laughs> I was not ready. <laughs> but, I mean, obviously it connected on a deep level. And, uh, and I was like, okay. <laughs> this is the movie for me. This is the experience for me.
0: Like this is a core memory now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a huge thing for me yes you're trying to think
0: who takes their 12 year
1: old to this film
0: (laughs) no because my parents also when i was younger they also like could not get a sitter so they took me to go see scream or might have been scream too because i remember it and i think i would have been too young to remember the original scream so it, it might have i do remember it though okay they took me i remember seeing scream in the theater
1: I could not how old would you have been?
0: I'm trying to think. When did Scream come out?
1: Oh God.
0: Ninety six, so I would have been five. I Oh been... my
1: <laughs> My Dad gets a pass. <laughs>
0: But I remember it. And I remembered. I was like, well, I'm never going into a garage again. I had a weird fear of like doggy doors for like...
1: God, like there's... (laughs) that movie's a catalog of things. I'm never answering the phone.
0: (laughs) I think I I watched half of that movie with like my mom's hand over my face.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes, I'm never dating anyone. I'm not like, uh, you know, anyone comes in my window, they're dead. Like all of that, like all of it, all of it. No way. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I read all of it, but I just remember like Tatum stuff for me was like, this is the core memory that is.
1: like. Yeah, well, she was such a cool character. And this was a really, you know, I mean, this is another thing that is always people don't believe that that horror writers invest themselves, I think, in characters and in situations this way. You know, it's really hard if you create a character you love, and then you have to kill them. You know that either it's the plot or it's the genre sometimes or or just the machinations of what you're trying to do. You reach a point where you think to yourself that character is going to go and and, you know, it's it's brutally difficult for me. If I have a character that I that I love and I love many of my characters and the character has to die, it's. It's really tough. There, there's a whole section towards the end of the book where I was really torn about what to do with certain characters. Was I going to lose them or not? How was it going to happen? And, uh, you know, and 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 I do some particularly perverse things where I bring characters back and things like that. So, so like all of that stuff was a struggle. There I I should warn people. There I sh- first of all I should say the book has a content warning. There's been a lot of talk around content warnings um, online. I did not have one for The Bone Mother and I have no particular regrets about that because people who had issues with the content obviously We've talked about there's good reads, you know. There's there are ways for people to sort of share that information. But one of the things that happened early on with Bone Mother was it started being nominated for awards that were not horror awards. And so it started to get a literary audience who is just not used to certain kinds of content. And so I thought to myself, I'm just gonna put a warning (laughs) because what else can you do? It's gonna be on the back flap, on the inside. People will mm-hmm. see it underneath the author photo and description and people can make of it what they want. One of the things that is tough and I acknowledge that it's tough is animal death. Um, I'm not, I was not particularly kind to animals in the bone mother <laughs> and I am not particularly kind to animals in this book. And, uh, and it's, and it's hard because I personally, love animals and i don't see animals as devices in horror novels but i do feel that they you know it is a way to sort of warn people that you know things are going to get intense and um i will say i I think it's cold comfort for some people um i will say that None of the animals um, in Red X dies by human hand. <laughs> it's mostly other animals preying upon them, which is awful enough. But you know, it's i I remember, Like my grandmother had a farm, my grandmother on my father's side. And in fact, a lot of that is alluded to in The Bone Mother. I I basically used my grandmother's farm um, for one particularly key story in uh, The Bone Mother. And on the farm, there was just, and you just knew it and you were just aware of it. There was a lot of animal death. It was seen as part of life. Um, It was, you know, my dad specifically would go um, once or twice a year uh, to do things like kill chickens, you know, uh, which I had to leave the farm while that was happening because the sound more than anything else, the sound was just horrendous. Um, but you knew it was going on. You knew that, you know, the pigs were being kept as pets, you know, the cows, the cows were, you know, making milk, but only making milk as long as they had calves. So you knew something was going on. Um, so you just, you were just, continually aware of that and also there's just the routine death of you know animals that you come across you know barn cats and things like that things happen so um that kind of stuff um how it connects to the characters and how it makes the characters feel and how it creates the foreshadowing for things to come um i take all that stuff very seriously and there are some choices that i made in red x and also in the bone mother that um were just really hard choices to make and you can see that in some of the other choices i make where some things get saved (laughs) and and that it's also a hugely emotional thing for me so um that that stuff you know that stuff is tough it's really it's it's tough having characters that you care for because you know that through you do you're doing your job well your audience is going to care for them too and tatum is a fantastic example of that i i really lamented tatum's death um because she was such a spark of life um in the film but the film wanted you to know that it was going to hit you where you live it was not just a comedy it did that with the drew barrymore character and it did it with her and uh and it was it was uh on that level it really was a horror movie it was merciless on a certain on a certain plane
0: oh definitely yeah
1: yeah and you were five
0: (laughs) well i think I think my parents just assumed I just wouldn't remember it. I don't know. like.
1: Yeah, I don't understand that. I remember Bambi. I remember Snow White. I was five when I saw Snow White. I remember vividly images from it. I've never seen that movie again. And I remember, like, huge piles of it. And it's like, yeah, kids remember things when they're five absolutely they've had they've seen so little that anything major that they see of course it's going to leave a mark
0: oh yeah well then they took me to go see Blair witch when i was eight like in theaters fun (laughs) (laughs) that was also a pickle (laughs) oh fun (laughs) because then that's a whole nother like is this fake or is this real and i was like this is really real i just watched someone die Um, I don't know. I can't process that in my eight-year-old brain.
1: Yeah, no, that, that, no.
0: (laughs) But anyway, I still love horror, so.
1: Yes, you're, yeah, that you've stuck with it is remarkable.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of things we enjoy, I like to ask all our guests for a chilling obsession. So what is something you have been enjoying recently in horror?
1: Okay, well, this is this one. I'm sure I'm sure no one's mentioned this one. (laughs) Maybe they have. I don't know. So lately, one of the things that's been really lovely and is largely, again, because of the bone mother. One of the things that's been lovely is I get asked every once in a while if I will um, sort of make a guest appearance in a classroom. Now it's virtual classrooms, which is actually even better because I can do it from a distance um and it's really cool and the kids are actually really swell and and so a couple of times i've been asked for older kids to talk about horror and writing horror and how that works and and stuff like that which is really cool um for another class recently i was asked to uh to talk about folklore and not in a specifically horror context although i certainly talked a lot about horror, but just how folklore in general informs our culture, informs the contemporary stories that we tell, how you take a piece of folklore and transform it, how how folklore transforms itself over the course of generations. And one of the things that I wanted to research was folklore that sort of stood outside of text. And so one of the things that I did was I read up on murder ballads and child ballads, and i love them (laughs) and it turns out i didn't realize this but i have kind of loved them all my life without necessarily knowing that that's what they were and and so that has been a cool experience so um some of them i mean as you can probably tell particularly with the child ballads, some of them are centuries old um but it's true of the murder ballads as well some go back to the medieval era and even possibly before they're a largely oral tradition when they have been written down, they have been changed by various people in various parts of the country or parts of the world, uh, depending on, you know, what's around them. So, so local stuff sort of finds its way in. Um, if you haven't heard many, and you probably have heard more than you think, they tend to be very dark and twisted. They tend to revolve around, you know, love and betrayal and jealousy and murder and suicide and revenge from beyond the grave. There, you know, and most of them are sort of either either very pretty folk songs <laughs> or very dark and moody folk songs. Um, a really interesting example of of one that is not north american or british that has had an effect on horror directly um uh ingrid ingmar bergman's ingrid bergman ingmar bergman's film the virgin spring um was the basis for uh wes craven's film uh the last house on the left many people know that um both tell the story of um a family that discovers that they have been kind to a group of strangers who in fact have murdered their daughter or daughters depending upon the version um, it is a uh, it's a northern European uh, ballot I want to say that it's Danish or Swedish um, or Norwegians, one of those, uh, Torres Daughter in Verge, it's from the 13th century. So, like something that is like 800 years old, you know, has made its way down in this sort of, you know, peculiar fashion into contemporary times and is still, in its own way, relevant and unique. Um, I'm going to list some songs. Okay. Um, so, I see you're wearing a Nirvana shirt. <laughs> um, Nirvana covered a Lead Belly song called In the Pines, and uh, and the Nirvana version is called uh, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? This is an old song. Uh, it has been covered by a number of people. The Lead Belly version, uh, which is a very old recording, is every bit as unsettling, although not quite as um violent and forceful as the Nirvana version. They're both really interesting. There are old songs like um there's one called Stagger Lee, another called uh The Long Black Veil, uh, Two Sisters, Down in the Willow Garden, The Cruel Mother, Frankie and Johnny, which is not only like people now look at it as being kind of campy, but it is in fact a murder ballad, and it was the basis of a movie and like all of this other stuff. So like that's interesting. There's a beautiful unsettling song called silver dagger that was um that's also old but um in the 60s was covered by joan baez and then more recently was covered by dolly parton and dolly parton is like the last person you think of when you think of murder ballad yeah her version is very faithful to to the uh to the original tone and sound of of, uh, of the song, so um, it also is a song that has had many variations, depending upon um, who's singing it, what part of the country, what time period. Um, there's a version called "Drowsy Sleeper." There are other songs like "Made of Co- Man of Constant Sorrow." Uh, Kamal all you fair and tender ladies uh which i think was done by like josh groban or somebody and again like really moody dark disturbing interesting songs there are some modern versions of uh murder ballads that i encourage people to check out uh, bruce springsteen had a whole album nebraska and the title song is absolutely um in that tradition sufian stevens of all people uh did one about john wayne gacy jr
0: yeah i know that one
1: (laughs) absolutely um nick cave wrote a duet for himself and kylie minogue called where the wild roses grow it was inspired by the traditional song down in the willow garden and i have a personal favorite um if you can call it that. (laughs) Uh, that I heard when it first came out because I'm ancient Um, there was a band it was a proto-punk band in 1977 called Suicide and they sang a song or screamed a song called Frankie Teardrop that is over 10 minutes long and is a two hour grindhouse horror movie in 10 minutes it is almost unbearable to listen to (laughs) it is it is an experience it's i mean many people can only listen to it once (laughs) i believe in fact there was it might have been a british television show where the evil host every once in a while would force somebody to sit in like you know like an old grimy dirty empty apartment building or something like that with headphones on and to listen to the song for as long as they possibly could. And most people bailed because it is just so intense. Um, Worth checking out. (laughs) So yeah, murder ballads, murder ballads and child ballads. They're, they're, they're fascinating. I, I, I don't think this book is going to be influenced by them, but I absolutely am going to write some things that will be because I just, I think they're, captivating yeah. yeah
0: absolutely this is gonna send me down like a spotify rabbit hole like looking
1: I use title and title actually has a playlist called murder Ballads, and it's quite a good list it's not comprehensive hmm. but it's it's there are some really interesting choices on it yeah spotify I'm sure there are people who have playlists yeah. of murder ballads on spotify absolutely
0: gotta be yeah, some user-generated <laughs> murder ballad playlist out there
1: totally if not I'll go in there and make one I don't care <laughs>
0: Well, I'm gonna have to yeah look through all these titles you mentioned and just like make a make a murder ballad playlist. yeah! <laughs> which leads me into my other question, which is, what is your final girl song? So my final
1: girl song <laughs> uh, certainly does not have a final girl as a victim. Um, I'm choosing Howl by Florence and the Machine. First of all, it is is just a banger of a song and secondly Mm -hmm. folklore inflected um very much around the idea of um romantic love and sexual passion churning within you and turning you into another kind of creature. There is a lot of shape-shifty, werewolfy stuff going on in it. The imagery is incredibly intense and strong. She has just such a wonderful voice and, uh, and deploys it beautifully. And I really do think of it as being an incredibly cinematic song as well you can easily picture it you know in the final 10 minutes of of almost any slasher movie you might hope for <laughs> so i i uh i absolutely go with that
0: awesome it's a fantastic choice and i'm glad that florence is finally on the playlist yay <laughs> <laughs> she's made it <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Red X.
1: Well, and thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. And I've been so looking forward to it, not just to be able to talk about the book, but to be able to talk with you. You know, you've been such, such a champion for me. And uh, and it's just been uh, delightful. It's just part of a series of delightful experiences that I've been able to have in horror. It's, it's fantastic. Well,
0: thank you. I... Loved getting to talk to you, too. And everyone listening should go check out Red X. (laughs) Well, thank you again.
1: Well, thank you again. This was terrific. I'm glad we were able to do it.
0: Books in the Freezer is a biweekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Books in the Freezer, and on TikTok at Books in the Freezer. You can also send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, there are a few ways to do that. One of them is to become a Patreon supporter. Go to patreon.com books in the freezer and check out all the perks we have to offer. There is a one, three, and a five dollar level. And there's all kinds of rewards from getting episodes released early and finding out what episodes are going to be out the week before to, I'm hoping now that my schedule is going to be a little more secure, starting up having movie nights again, and of course, being a part of the Foxer group chat. So go on patreon.com and check that out if that sounds interesting to you. Another way to support the podcast is to use the Amazon link that is in the show notes. That's going to take you right to Amazon. You would do your normal Amazon shopping that you would normally do and a small percentage of that goes to help out the podcast Now, you can help out the podcast without spending any money and an easy way to do that is by leaving a review on a platform like Apple Podcasts that helps the podcast gain a lot of visibility. So thank you so much to all of you who have taken the time to do that already and of course all of you that post about listening to the podcast on social media and like tag me when you're reading books that have been recommended. I love all of that and thank you for that. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on Instagram at that's what she read. And that's that's with two A's. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Books in the Freezer.